The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, friends, please grab your seats, grab your Bibles, open them to Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the ones in and around the seats uh, are yours to keep if you'd like. Grab one. That's our, that's our gift to you. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. If you're new to reading the Bible, in the Bible there are large numbers and small numbers. The large numbers are chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are verses. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. We've been, for the last several weeks, studying the book of Galatians together. And let me just give you a a quick recap of where we've been so far, because what Paul is doing and where we're dropping in is in in the middle of a pretty complex series of arguments he's making about the nature of salvation. That is, how men are saved before God. Are they saved either by works or by faith? And Paul's whole contention, his whole ministry, his whole gospel is that men are not saved by their works or by the works of the law or by their obedience to some outward standard, but only by their faith in Christ. It is Jesus who has fulfilled the works of the law perfectly that we could not, and therefore we must unite ourselves to Christ only by faith if we are to receive the blessings and the inheritance promised to God's people, not by our own works. So he began in the first two chapters of the book of Galatians by reminding them that he was indeed commissioned by Christ himself to speak authoritatively on how this gospel is to be believed and received and how men are to be saved. He was commissioned by Christ himself. He says, remember, I was saved on the road to Damascus by Jesus who appeared to me and told me to preach the gospel which I preached to you to the Gentiles. I didn't receive my authority or my calling from the other apostles or from the church in Jerusalem. I didn't make it up. I didn't self-call myself. I was called and commissioned by Christ. My authority comes from Him. And so the gospel he preaches is one that Jesus sent him to preach. But the problem is the Galatian churches are beginning to move away from that gospel that Paul had once delivered to them. This gospel that they are united to Christ and receive the blessings and the promises of God's word by their faith in Christ and instead are believing lies. They're being deceived, bewitched, as Paul would put it, by these antagonists that would come in and stir up with a false gospel that says, no, it is necessary to come to faith in Christ, but after your faith in Christ, you must then turn in submission and obedience to the law of Moses, namely, you need to be circumcised if you're going to truly obey God, if you truly want to live holy and righteous before God. The law of Moses is intended for Christians to obey, they say. And Paul says, no. No, no, that's not the gospel. The gospel frees us from the law. It does not chain us to the law. The gospel is of faith and not of works. We are not saved by our works. We are not kept by our works, but only by faith in Christ. And then in chapters 2, at the end of chapter 2 and verse, chapter 3, he begins to sort of break down a theology of really what that means. And we've, we call this justification. That is how we are declared righteous before God. He says we are justified by our faith and not by our works. And so in the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4, he goes deeper. And he tries to help us understand that the basis of justification by faith, that is the basis of our being saved and declared righteous before God by our faith and not by our works, is actually a biblical doctrine, not one that he's made up, not one that's new or that's some new revelation, but rather this was in the Bible all along, though God has now chosen to reveal it under this new dispensation, this new covenant in Christ now it's clear that the Gentiles can be saved by faith and not by works. A man cannot be saved by works, but by faith. So where we're at now in chapter 3 and verse 15 
is really a sort of a, a parenthetical statement that Paul makes uh, from verse 15 really all the way through uh, our text into verse 7 of chapter 4, give or take. He's, he's saying something about the law that really supports his fundamental argument that the law has passed away and faith is the means of salvation alone. That the law has served its purpose and faith is a means by which we now come to Christ, not the law. And so this is an argument he's making parenthetically to what he has been before. So if you want to go deeper into what has been covered already, I want to encourage you to, to go online, listen to the previous sermons, or if you have any questions, please feel free to ask me and, or others, and we'll walk through that together. But let's read Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to go through verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, to give a human example, brothers, that is an example of how in Christ Jesus, this is verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promised spirit through faith. He's given an illustration to give an, ex an example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one knows it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For, as to make, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. And so is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you all you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might be, receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that in our study of your word, that we would be mindful of its truth and its application to our lives. Lord, I am not smart enough to have fully figured this out. But I do pray, God, as I, as I preach, that both my speaking and our hearing would be aided by the Spirit so that we would understand. For, Lord, your Spirit has been given to us just for this purpose that we may understand the mind of God. And so we pray, God, that we would understand the mind of God in this text. That we would understand your purposes, 
that we would see most clearly the gift of salvation in Christ who has come in the fullness of time according to your wisdom. Lord, we ask that you would clear our minds and hearts of distractions and, and anxieties and allow us to see clearly, God, the answer to our problems, the solutions to our vexations. And we would know that if we walk in light of the, of, of the text this morning, we walk freely in the gospel. We pray for your help as always in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So common questions among Christians regarding the Old Testament really revolve around the, the issue of relevancy. Is the Old Testament relevant to the Christian life? And of course the answer is and has been since the beginning of the Christian faith, yes. But the next question is not as easily answered. In what way is the Old Testament relevant to the Christian life? For clearly, we don't submit ourselves to every commandment in the Bible. We don't submit ourselves to the civil and ceremonial regulations contained in the Mosaic Law and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We don't wear tunics of only a single fabric. We don't avoid shellfish or, God forbid, pork any longer. We don't have to succumb to certain dietary restrictions. We don't force ourselves to only walk so many steps on a particular day of the week. We don't have to travel and make sacrifices. So what do we do with the Old Testament, which is a large portion of our scriptures that we believe was given to us by God? If they are indeed God's word, would they not then hold the same binding legal effect on Christians today as they have for God's people throughout the centuries? And if not, then why did God give the law in the first place? Why has the law been delivered to Moses by angels for Israel to be preserved, now co-opted by Christians as their scripture, if there's really no immediate relevancy of the commands to the Christian life. What's the purpose of the law? And, and what are Christians like us to do with it now if it doesn't have the immediate relevancy as it once did? Well, you can see from a reading of this passage that Paul is making the case and continuing to make the case that our justification is by faith and not by works of the law. And so you might expect then that Paul is arguing that we actually don't need the law, that the law had a purpose, its purpose has been accomplished, and we can get rid of it now. But that would actually be contrary not only to what Paul says in this passage, but to everything else that Paul will say about the law elsewhere in his writings in the New Testament. Now, his opponents here, the agitators in the Galatian churches, will point to Paul and say he wants to destroy Moses who is really one of the founders of our faith. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we have Moses, and we have David, and these pillars of our faith, Paul wants to take one out. He wants to throw away the law. He wants to unhitch it from what God is doing now. But Paul's argument isn't that we should get rid of the law, but that we need to reread and reinterpret the law in light of what God has now delivered, what he has now revealed through Christ. And indeed, when we do this, we see that the veil with which we once read the law is lifted, and we see more clearly what God has been intending all along. And so he explains why we can't turn to the law to obtain the promises that were offered to Abraham. But nor can we dismiss the law as no longer relevant to the Christian life. And so it's the job of Christians today to understand what that relevancy is how Paul's attitude towards the law doesn't mean that we throw it out, but it also means that we must reread and reinterpret it in light of the gospel that he preaches. And so this morning may feel like it's sort of theologically dense or heavy. And, and it is. This is one of the most theologically dense and heavy passages of any of Paul's writings. Again, I do think that Peter, when he commends the writings of Paul to others, recognizes that it's it's difficult, and I think he's thinking of Galatians 3, to be honest. So what do we do with a passage like this that seems to be less applicable to our lives immediately because it's really 
a theological musing about the law and what Christians do with it. If my aim in preaching is to help equip you for the work of the ministry, which is the job of a pastor elder, then how can you be equipped to do ministry if I'm only giving you theology? Well, I want to submit to you that in the theology of understanding the Bible and the law, you are better equipped to live out the gospel in light of the scriptures more faithfully. What can we do with a passage like this? I'm going to give you three things here just in the beginning before we look more closely at the text. The first thing we can do with a passage like this is we can learn how to read our Bibles. You can see the implication here. Paul's making a hermeneutical argument, actually. Hermeneutics being the fancy word for how to study and interpret your Bible. He actually wants to say, if you look at the Bible and understand it in light of the gospel of Christ, if you put on the lens of the gospel and you read your Bible that way, you begin to see what God has been doing. That mystery, which was, as he puts it elsewhere, hidden for ages. Peter will say that the prophets inquired and prayed and asked God what the things that they were writing meant. And it was revealed that they were not for theirs, but our sake. And even angels long to behold. Paul says we begin to understand what God has been up to more clearly than others before. This is a mystery. And when we say mystery, we don't mean that it's a riddle or a puzzle now solved. We mean God kept this secret, and now the secret is open. It doesn't resolve the mysteriousness of what God has done over the years. But now we have clarity into the inside of that mystery. So we learn how to read our Bibles from passages like this. And so it's worth getting into the details of how Paul argues with Scripture and reasons with Scripture so that we can be better students of the Bible ourselves. The second thing we can do with a passage like this is that we, we can learn to frame the gospel and the new covenant in its proper context. That is, it helps us make sense of the gospel and the new covenant in the context of the whole scope of what Scripture teaches. In all of Revelation, we want to understand how it points to the gospel. This new covenant that Jesus talks about, this is the new covenant in my blood, he says, at the Last Supper. This new covenant that the prophets spoke of, with Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we understand more fully and see more clearly the new covenant if we see it in the context of the old. If we understand that the gospel and the covenants are framed in a particular way, Paul is doing covenant theology here. He's looking back at the previous covenants that God has made with men, namely Abraham and Moses, and the new covenant that was established in Christ, and helping the Christians begin to sort it out a little bit. Now, this is an exhaustive treatment of all the covenants of the Bible, but we see here Paul clearly arguing and working with text to help frame the gospel and the new covenant in a proper context. So we learn how to better read our Bibles. We learn how to frame the gospel and the covenant in its biblical context. And lastly, what we can do with a patch like this is we begin to learn to better apply the gospel. From learning to read well and contextualizing the gospel and the new covenant in the context of all of Scripture, we now will achieve better biblical application. Because if you miss if you misunderstand the framework of the gospel in its context, if you approach the gospel or the scriptures with a different framework in mind, if you flatten out all the covenants, if you, if you make too discontinuous the old and the new, or too continuous, then you end up having some errors in your application. So I, I hope just quickly this allows us to see that there is a possibility of understanding a scriptural argument contained in a passage like this as immediately relevant to the Christian's life. That you may become a better Bible reader and student, a better grasp on the structure of the Bible as it relates to the covenants, and that you can better apply the Bible more biblically faithful because you have a clear knowledge of what the Bible is saying. And Paul in this text is beginning to outline and structure, contextualize the gospel and the covenants in that way. He wants the Galatian readers to understand that 
what the opponents are doing is actually messing with Scripture's integrity by claiming that justification can be by, by works and not by faith. Paul's making the case here very clearly that if you go to the Bible and you read it right, you will see that the law was not meant to save, but it has been God's plan from the very beginning that we be justified by faith alone. Okay, so with that in your back pocket, let's look to the text, and I want to move fairly quickly because we do have a bit to cover. The first thing we see in the first couple verses is that the promise takes priority over the law. We're looking at the priority of the promise in verses 15 through 18. He gives this illustration or an example of how the Gentiles may come to Christ and receive the blessing of Abraham that God promised all the way back in Genesis 15. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. What is he talking about? This is a, a cultural understanding that there is a particular kind of will or testament or covenant that could be made that cannot be altered by the parties either who established it or with which that covenant was made or contract with was made. Now, there were covenants or contracts that could be altered. Our wills today can be altered. We could cut people out of it. We could add people to it. We can change it if our assets grow or diminish. But there was a certain kind of covenant contract that could be established that once established couldn't be altered. Couldn't be added to, subtracted to, nullified. And so he speaks to this. He says, we know that even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So he starts with a, a, a cultural understanding, and he elevates this. Now the promises were made, verse 16, to Abraham and to his offspring. So we move from a man-made covenant now to a God-made covenant. And it says that the covenant was established to Abraham and his offspring. And he says it doesn't say offsprings as in plural or many, but to one, to his offspring, who is Christ. And this is what I mean. Thankfully, Paul helps us understand more clearly. The law which came 430 years afterward, that is after the promise given to Abraham, this law does not annul or nullify a covenant previously ratified by God. Just like a man-made covenant can't be annulled or ratified or done away with because a new covenant was made, neither can the law, which came 430 years afterward, do anything to violate or annul the promise. It cannot void the promise of the covenant made with Abraham. For if the inheritance, that is the promise to Abraham, comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So we see that there is a, a priority that the promise takes over the law. And what we don't want to do is flatten out the Bible that just stacks one thing on top of another and say, well, the promise happened way back here in Genesis. But in Exodus, that's a whole other book later, the law was given to Israel at Sinai. And so that must supersede this one. But then again, the prophets speak elsewhere. And then we have David. And is that covenant different? And what do we do, we don't want to flatten that out to everything becomes one. Paul's arguing that we need to keep distinct the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses. And they don't compete against one another, nor does the one affect or nullify the other. He's preserving the preeminence of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing and the promise that is the inheritance of God's people is contained by the promise of the Abrahamic covenant and not by the conditions of of the law. The law came later and does not nullify or make void the promise. So notice what he says in verse 18 then, that the inheritance, the blessing which, which Gentiles now can lay claim to by faith in Christ is tied not to the law. It's tied to the promise. So he divides the, the covenant of Abraham with the Mosaic covenant, the, the law that we read about in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus numbers. And he says, this law came later, but the inheritance that we claim hold of comes by the promise, not by the law. And this promise, he says, notice in verse 16, this promise was made to Christ. 
That's the one that he spoke of when he says, to your offspring, to the seed. Ultimately, this is Christ. So what Paul is doing here is rereading the text of Genesis as God making the promises of the covenant with Christ. The final recipient of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant is not to the natural descendants of Abraham, but to Christ, the seed which was promised. And so the law comes afterward, but the promise which was given to Abraham and to Christ has priority over the law because the promises and the inheritance is tied to the promise. And it is Christ who receives the promise. And then therefore those by faith, united to Christ, become heirs of that promise. That's the whole argument he makes. So the law which comes 430 years afterward, it doesn't alter or add to the promises he says. Let me summarize it this way. The law which demands perfect obedience, cannot be the source of the inheritance promised to Abraham's seed. The law cannot be the source of our inheritance. Indeed, it was not made to be the source of the inheritance. It came 430 years too late. It was the promise. That's why God gave the promise hundreds of years before he gave the law. So the point is very simple. Because the promise was given first and cannot be nullified by another covenant made with Moses and God's people, then it still stands. The inheritance which was promised to Abraham and to his descendant Christ is not nullified by the law which comes later. So the promise takes priority. But then in the next several verses of verses 19 through 24, the natural question then shows up. What's the law for then? If the inheritance comes by the promise, why then the law? That's literally the question he anticipates in verse 19. Why then the law? What's the purpose if not to lead us to the inheritance promised to us? He gives two answers to the question of the purpose of those precepts. The first, he says, is to increase sin. Look at what it says in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions into the offspring, that is Christ, should come to whom the promise has been made. It was added because of transgressions. What does that mean? Well, it either means sin was so bad in people's lives that God had to give the law to restrain it. Or the law was given by God to increase sin. It is actually the latter. It says, because of transgressions, the law was given, so that it might imprison, it says later in verse 22, the same point, to imprison everything under sin. Meaning, the law here has a provocative nature. It provokes sin in us. Now, Romans is really the best commentary on Galatians we have. It's where Paul develops some of these themes more detailed. And there's a parallel passage here in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where he says that the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. But why? Why would God, or what purpose would God have for giving a law that he knew would excite, or to use Paul's word, arouse or increase sin in his people. Doesn't that seem contrary to God's purposes? To help grow his people, and make them holy, to make them like him, to help them obey? He gives a law that it would increase sin? What's going on, Paul? Well, he says very clearly, God gives the law to increase sin because the law codifies man's rebellion against God or that it makes the invisible sin in the heart of God's people, indeed of all humanity, visible through transgression. Okay, parents will understand this. Sin's bound up in the heart of a child. Let's just use Cohen as an example. You give a ball, place it in front of him and say, Cohen, do not throw the ball. What's Cohen going to do? 
He's going to pick it up and throw it. Nine times out of ten. Now, would he have thrown it if I didn't place it in front of him and told him not to? No. If I placed it there in front of him and said, you're free to have fun. The transgression of the command shows that there's sinfulness in his heart already. So the law doesn't create sin, it makes it visible. We all know this. Immediately when someone tells you not to do something, the very first thing you want to do is exactly what you were told not to do. That's the condition of human heart. We, we buck against rules and regulations. No one can tell me what to do. I have autonomy. And God says, I know you think that. And here's 600 different precepts to show you that you think you do that you really don't. So it says that the law was given to increase transgressions. The law, he says in Romans 5.20, came in to increase trespass. Because in doing so, it codifies man's rebellion. He says in Romans 4, verse 15, The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Right? If you don't have a law, you can't break the law. You can't be seen as a sinner or a transgressor. But the law makes that clear that you are not by creating it in you, but actually bringing out what was there the whole time. He'll say later in chapter 7 that I wouldn't have known and wanted to covet if I hadn't understood that God had told me not to covet. It brings this out of me. So it codifies man's rebellion. It gives visibility to sin in our heart. But there's a second sense in which the, the law increases trespasses or was given because of transgressions. Paul explains that it's given because it increases our need of grace by stirring up the sinfulness in our hearts. Not only does it make clear that we're sinners because we transgress against the law, but it actually excites our sin because we want to transgress the law and therefore creates all the more need for grace. So he'll say in Romans 7.13, Did that which is good, referring to the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? That means, did, did the law create the sin? Is it God's fault for giving me the law? Would I have ever sinned if I didn't have the law in front of me? Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin, listen, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. There's the visibility and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Meaning, I might be clear that I am unable to control my own sinful appetite and desires. Law or no law, it's there, but the law shows not only that I am a sinner, but it works so much within me that is my heart bucks against it that it is so obvious that I need grace. So in reality, the law works in service to the promise here, not contrary to it. That's why he says in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. This is emphatic no. They're not pitted against one another. The law is a servant of the promise in that it shows us to be sinners and excites or arouses sin so much within us as our hearts rebel against the law and God that we have no clear recourse for our sin except the grace of God. That was the point of the law. Why the law? To increase sin. So John Piper would put it this way, the reason the law compounded sin instead of giving life was that the recipients of the law were ruled by the flesh and devoid of the spirit. They were unable to obey the law because they did not have the spirit but were ruled by the flesh. The law was given to show us that without God's help, we cannot fully obey. Now, sin had crept in in Genesis 3 before the law was given, before Abraham was even on the scene. The promise was then given to Abraham, and the law comes 430 years later to show that we desperately need God's help. So the first purpose of the law was to increase sin, to make clear that sin is sin and we are sinners, and to excite and increase sin so that we would need grace or be clear of our need for grace. 
The second reason Paul gives then is not only the law was given to increase sin, but it was to also imprison everything under it. It says there in verse 22, everything would be imprisoned under sin. Or we can continue to read in verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. So the law was to be our guardian or our schoolmaster until Christ came. That is, it could not save us because it could not grant a new heart. But it gave, as a guardian would, it gave direction, it provides restraint, it points us in a particular pl place. It was an instructor so that we may learn faith. And we were kept under its guardianship. Thus the law was more like a servant in that its commands and its precepts were instructing the heart to meet those commands with faith and not with work. That its burdens might be lifted, that the path of life might be made clear. You, you can see the genius and the wisdom of God in giving the law and setting everything under it, imprisoning all things under it, so that we could clearly see that it was pointing us to Christ the whole time. It was instructive, the law was. And so he says, it was given to us to keep everything under sin until faith would be revealed. Then look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So something has happened. Faith has come, and the guardianship of the law now ends. The law doesn't end as word of God and revelation, but the guardianship of the law does. This was an interim job. It was to hold things in place until the one to whom the promise was made, Christ, comes. And so he says, faith has come. What does this mean? Faith has come. Well, this is the, the new dispensation of the age of the new covenant. Faith has come. That is, there's an enabling work of the Holy Spirit which was void under the old covenant in most cases. The enabling work of the Holy Spirit comes in a, with Christ as a movement to quicken men's hearts to repent and believe the gospel. To obey by trust and assurance. That's real faith. So what wasn't present under the old covenant, as a general rule, was the Spirit who enabled obedience. And thus faith in Christ's promises was necessary. But what comes with Christ is the Spirit, which renews a man's heart to trust and obey Christ and His Word. Faith has come. And therefore, the guardianship of the law, which imprisoned all things under sin and held us captive and reminded us that we are sinners, and every transgression of the law increased our sins so that we had no recourse for help but God's grace, faith comes and answers the longings of every human heart. So notice then that because of the coming of faith, there are several implications he draws out here. There are implications of the coming of faith and the, and the fulfillment of Christ. But now that faith have come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the entire law of Moses. You are not under the guardianship. The transgressions of obedience to the law or the disobedience to the commands of Scripture are no longer relevant. Why? Those commands have been fulfilled by Christ. The guardianship of the law no longer has its place. It's set aside. Those who are in Christ by faith will, as it were, graduate. Christ is your new instructor, not the law. So the law presents commandments. Now, no longer that we must be obligated to obey as a law under the old covenant, but rather to teach us and point us to Christ 
his fulfillment and how we might obey him in faith. So one of the implications of the coming is that we are no longer under the guardian of the law. This is Paul's whole point. You don't need to be circumcised. That was the command of the law. If the law's guardianship is over and Christ has come and with with it faith has come, then the command to be circumcised is no longer binding. Another implication is that we come not only just no longer under a guardian or under the law, but we are now sons of God through faith. We have been adopted by sons through faith. This is the whole point of verse 1 through 7 of chapter 4. That we become heirs of Christ, of the promise. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, verse 5. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so you have the promise of adoption in the gospel because you've been receiving the inheritance by faith. You've graduated from the school of faith over which the law was your guardian and now step into the reality of faith because Christ has come and fulfilled all things. Because of your faith then you become united to Christ and become heirs of that promise which he receives. There's another implication here. We also see then that there's a unity of the body as a whole. Is a unity of the body as a whole. He says that we are now neither slave nor free, verse 28, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we've been removed from under the law, and we are now adopted as sons and daughters of God through faith, and as we have been united to Christ by that faith, we are now no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all one in Christ. There's a now beautiful unity of the body for all of those who are united together by faith in Christ. It's an implication of the law's release, or at least of its grip on us. And the last implication is that we become heirs of the promise. Verse 29, you are Christ's then. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring. Now notice the, the definitiveness of this. Your faith in Christ unites him into such a way that you are said to be his. If you are Christ's, then you are, like Christ, Abraham's offspring, and therefore heirs according to promise. This is beautiful work of adoption gives to us the, the, full, the fullness and completion of the promise made to Christ which is ours by faith. This union with Christ changes our whole reality, both to the law, but also to God, and that we have those promises of God. The inheritance is ours. What is this inheritance? We'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And then we'll end with just a few exhortations. Ephesians chapter 1 is just one book over. He prays for the Ephesian church. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the great working, to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there is a glorious inheritance of the saints, this immeasurable richness 
of his power and greatness toward us who believe in Christ. So what do we receive as the inheritance? Eternal life, salvation, satisfaction, all the riches of God's immeasurable greatness poured out towards us as Christians united by faith. So what then do we do with a text like this? We mentioned three already. We can learn how to read the Bible, frame the gospel in the New Testament in its biblical context to become better biblical application seekers. I'm going to give you three exhortations in light of this. First is that we must consider the exceeding sinfulness of sin. One of the things we can't take for granted here in Galatians is what Paul's point is saying that sin is sinful, desperately sinful, separates us from God. Your sin has separated you from God, holy, righteous, and perfect. And you stood under condemnation and his wrath as a sinner. The exceeding sinfulness of sin means that there is no way that you can achieve salvation unless you turn to Christ in faith. And the exceeding sinfulness of sin is such that it will excite itself at any time there is an opportunity for you to obey God. It is not just the every now and then sort of sinfulness that you and I now possess, but our hearts have been so corrupted, even though we are being transformed one degree of glory to the next through the Spirit's work in us, that we sense in ourselves an impulse to sin every time we come against one of God's good commands. We need to be realistic about what that means that we are desperately, wickedly sinful. We speak about this as a depravity that is total. There is no part of our bodies which is unstained by sin, our hearts which is uncorrupted by sin. Now, we are not completely as wicked as we could be, but the roots of sin often go deep. Let us be aware of the exceeding sinfulness of sins. And so one of the things that we can do with the law today, although its commands are no longer binding on us as they were for Israel, is we can read those commands, read Leviticus, and remind yourself of God's righteousness and your exceeding sinfulness. You should read the law, thankful that you are no longer under it, but even more humbled because of the exceeding sinfulness of of sin in your own heart that the law exposes. Secondly, deepen your dependence on God's grace. That's step one. Consider the exceeding sinfulness of sin. What follows from that then, Christian, is that you would deepen your dependence on grace. If the law excites sin, arouses sins within your members, and you are fighting that battle as Paul talks about in Romans 7, Oh, who will ransom or rescue this body from death? You must depend on grace, deeply depend on grace. You read Leviticus, you see God's righteousness, you see the exceeding sinfulness of the sin in your own heart, and you throw yourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ, thankful that Christ paid the penalty for your sin, but your deepened dependence on grace means that you rely on him more and more for the battle in your own heart as you fight the sin in your own members. And lastly, be in awe of the wisdom of God's plan. There's so much more to say about this, and unfortunately next week we'll move on. But in verse 4 of chapter 4, this is a beautiful statement. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Just contained in that short phrase, the fullness of time had come. That is, when, when God deemed it absolutely right, the perfect timing and wisdom of God's purposes and plans cannot be questioned. Why did he give the law? God had purpose for it. Why did Christ die? Because it was according to God's purposes. Why is there sin? Why are there tragedies? Why is my life going so terribly wrong? Why do my children disobey? Why is my partner constantly arguing? Why can't I seem to get a hold of this or get out of that? Why? Consider verse 4. If in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, what, what purposes might God still be at work in your own life? Friends, the exhortation here is to see in God all wisdom, all insight, perfect in its complete unity, 
so that you may then continue to depend on grace deeply as you fight the exceeding sinfulness of sin in your own life. Use Scripture, all of it, the law included, to help you, to remind you, to show you indeed that Christ came in the fullness of time for your sin, the sin which is exceedingly sinful, so that you may continue to rely upon grace, not because you can earn yourself salvation, but because by faith you are united to Christ who has earned it for you. This is what we must do as Christians. If you're not a Christian this morning, the simple step for you is to start with your own heart. Am I a sinner? Does God's word reveal this to me? If I find myself to be a sinner falling short of the glory of God, then I must submit myself to God's wisdom and plan. I depend upon His grace for my salvation and not my own work. And all things in my life are given over into His hand for His purposes and for His glory. This is what I must do. And so I encourage you to do it. Let's pray. Father, again, we give what little time and effort we have this morning to the study of your word. And we pray, I pray now that it was helpful and encouraging for us to understand that you have been so gracious to us in giving us your word, all of it, even the difficult bits in Leviticus and Galatians 3, knowing that there is value because it is your word. It never ceases to be your word. It is your revelation. It is your wisdom. It is your insight. And the law which stood as a guardian over your people point your people to faith in your promises. So may we avoid the trap of legalism that says we must erect laws for ourselves that we may earn or keep our salvation, but deepen our dependence upon your grace because we know the sinfulness of sin runs deep within us. But Lord, there is no depth of sin that grace is ever deeper still. So we ask, God, that you would help us plumb the depths of grace, the unsearchable, unfathomable depths of grace, that we may come to know the inheritance of the saints and the riches, the great riches of your power in Christ, which raised Christ Jesus from the dead. We love him. We love you. We pray now as always in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under Racism a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative response. 3.0 license. If you would you like to learn more or listen to past sermons, Christmas song. please visit us song. at foundationfxbg.com.